welcome to the Crazy Bird podcast. I'm your host, Violeta Kaminska, and today we have a wonderful guest with us, Margaret Nudin. Hello, Margaret. How are you? I'm good. Bonjour. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I probably will ask you a lot of times today okay. <laughs> from pronouncing words, names correctly. So before we get into this fascinating conversation that we already started before this recording, I'm going to share with our listeners a little bit about you. Margaret Nudin received an MFA in creative writing and a PhD in English and linguistics from the University of Minnesota. She's a professor of English and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee where she also serves as the Associate Dean of the Humanities and Director of the Electa Queenie Institute for American Indian Education. She's the author of Bawajamo, A Dialect of Dreams in Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe, yeah. Anishinaabe language and literature, Weweni and What the Chickadee Knows, Wayne State University Press, which are both bilingual collections of poetry in Anishinaabe Moen, and English. To hear her work, visit the website. And this I'm going to let you pronounce, Margaret. I will not even try at this point. Ojibwe.net. And we will share more sources and places and platforms where our listeners can find your work and enjoy it. So once again, welcome to Crazy Bird Podcast, Professor Noonan. I'm really, really happy to have you here. And I've been waiting for this interview for quite some time. So I'm really especially happy today. Just so happy that it's finally happening. Thank you so much for being here. I'm happy as well to be here. So why am I so excited? And how did I get to know about your work? Over a year ago, a friend of mine gifted me, it was a surprise, this book, What the Chickadee Know. And I'm holding it, I'm showing it actually to you because we can see each other. And I remember I was telling you before we started this recording that I was so fascinated. When I opened the book, first page I opened it to was page 23. On page 23, the book has two languages, right? One page on the left. What language is that? Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe, right. And then the English translation is on page to the right. So, of course, I had no idea what I was looking at on the left-hand side. I found it fascinating. But then I looked at the title, Rock Your Soul, and then I read the poem, and I kept reading it while standing and not taking off my coat. And then finally I sat down and I read the whole book. And I thought, okay, now I can make dinner. But I couldn't stop thinking about that book. I had never done that before. Just open the book and then just read the whole book at one sitting and I really fell in love with that writing and I was so inspired that next day I created a digital collage while thinking about Rock Your Soul. Would you mind reading to us Rock Your Soul? Sure, I can. There's a little bit of a story that goes with it. I will see if I can take a second here and make sure I get it right. So this particular poem comes from a time when I visited England and I was visiting my friends, David Stirrup, who is a professor at Kent and Padraig Kerwin, who's a professor at Goldsmiths. And I was talking to them and a group of people about indigenous language and literature and doing a presentation and really wanted to leave people with the impression that the language for us can be a source of joy 
and it isn't always a, a decolonial sadness when we're working to recover languages. Obviously, the place we begin from, um, my friend Podrick Kerwin being Irish, another instance of English coming in as the language that sort of takes over and Irish and uh, Welsh and Scotch, all those Gaelic languages suffered and just the way the languages over here suffered. So this was an attempt in that conversation about indigenous languages across the globe, which often can be tinged with a little loss and sadness to say something different. So I can't do this for all of the poems, but it's interesting. This is the one that you were intrigued by off the bat. I'll see if I can get it right. You might say, oh, we should try that again. (laughs) (laughs) But this is how this one was first presented to them over at Goldsmiths in London. And the title is Jichibakosh Jichok. And just because the way that sound, thinking about how to find joy in your own soul or how to rock in that sort of nurturing rhythmic way, that turned into the poem. that's how that one goes <laughs> you so i could i could just sit here and listen for an hour this is beautiful would you be so kind now i'm really pushing i know and taking advantage of your kindness <laughs> that's okay no <laughs> would you be so kind and read it in english i can read it in english but I often say I can read it in English, but because I write them in Anishinaabemwin and I often connect sound and song and the rhythms of our language, I can, I've built into the Anishinaabe poems a kind of a rhythm where I can bring those a different way forward. So those I can sing, but I don't, if I'm true to the content and the meaning of it, I don't have the same rhythm in the English. Mm So, but it's just sort of an interesting thing to note itself about the translation. So I will absolutely, I'm happy to read it in English. So again, the title is Rock Your Soul. Release impossibilities, build a nest for your soul. Rock your soul inside the space that you have gathered. What they don't see on the ground and in the trees are the answers swaying. As we find peaceful sleep, as we connect our dreams, release the dark storms and you will be blessed. Fill the emptiness behind all the doors you once closed. Then they will see the bright embers that protect our lives as we find peaceful sleep, as we connect our dreams. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. So I have a question. Your background is linguistics, English, writing, and you sing and write songs. 
I'm really curious about that. That leads me, I want to talk about so many things and I know our time is limited, mm -hmm. but you shared with me also that beautiful song you wrote. And I mentioned before we started recording that I really enjoy listening in the morning to that song. It's very meditative. Is it something that you've done throughout your lifetime, singing and you connected with languages and literature? Yes, I would say I have done this all throughout my life. People should be very cautious of what they do around their children. I think it's a very good example of how we forget that our children are raised by everything around them. So I was born when my father was finishing up working on his PhD in education and writing a thesis about language acquisition in young children. So as the first child at that point, there I was amongst a, a number of adults who were thinking about language and how kids learn languages and doing serious work. I can recall being in public school with other people my age the first time. And I thought, why are they not writing papers? Why are they not giving tests? Right. So, <laughs> so I just grew up in that space among teachers. My mother also was a teacher for many, many years. She started out teaching elementary school and then later she worked in adult education. So even generations before that, my, my uncles, my grandparents, I just come from a long line of teachers, you know? So for me, when I think of language, I think of it as a way to teach. I've always sort of centered language in that space that we are communicating what we know and we're trying to learn more. So either we're sharing what we know or we're trying to use language to learn something, find new patterns or connect with other parts of the world and put pieces together. And both sides of my family, there was a lot of singing all the time, just in that kind of casual, just singing after dinner kind of way or sing to the babies or sing when you're happy kind of. My grandmother uh, was really well known for singing at weddings and events and things. So it was something I just grew up with and that connection between language and song to me, seemed very natural. And I think certainly when I began focusing on writing in Anishinaabe, when that connection in the way that people who were using an oral system for transmission of knowledge very frequently to combine song and words together just ensures that, you know, higher chance that people will remember it, I think. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, if you listen, you hear the birds sing, you hear the world kind of singing around you all the time. So I, I kind of, I like to try and echo that a bit. Today, I looked at the cover, the back yes. cover of the book, and it does say that you're looking at the world, listening to sounds around, and they all come together. We're all filtering them. And then what we hear, it's really translated into words. I completely agree with that. It kind of helps understand where you come from and where you pick up all those sounds and how you put them into words and sounds literally yes. so sound, you translate the landscape even urban landscape nature sounds into the sounds that come out from the poems yeah i would agree as a as a student and a teacher i think we continually it's one of those things about balance in life right we're constantly learning we're constantly teaching to keep mm -hmm. things balanced i think is best i don't think i ever want to get to a point where i think there's nothing more i can learn mm -hmm. and i think even the the youngest children have something to teach as well so really i often think of language that way anishinaabe i'm mispronouncing it is it close anishinaabe anishinaabe yeah anishinaabe it's fine so yeah. 
can you please tell us a little bit why Anishinaabe and what is this language, Anishinaabe? Yeah. So one thing that people can do if they want to see a map, we have a map on our website called Inawe Masnaigan, and it was a project recently I completed with some of my students to show the large Anishinaabe diaspora. So in Canada and in the United States now, there are First Nations in Canada and sovereign nations or reservations in the United States whose background, their heritage, culture, and language is Anishinaabe. And they have different names now. Some of them are the, you know, Saginaw Chippewa or the Wikwamekong Unseated First Nation or the Grand Portage Lake Superior Chippewa, you know, so they have names that reflect the time that political agreements were made during colonization. But what I think hasn't happened enough is that people look at how many there are. So in fact, there are 142 separate sovereign nations with governments and education programs and communities of people working to save and protect and continue to use their language and practice their cultural traditions. And so Anishinaabe is a bit of an umbrella term. And within that, it's a bit like when you say Gaelic has Scottish, Welsh, and Irish. Anishinaabe has Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi. Probably there is the most difference between the Ojibwe and the Potawatomi languages. Odawa is very close to Ojibwe. All of them have the same grammar. Many of the words are shared. So there's ways in which those languages fit together and people would have moved between those communities really well. So it was a powerful and vast alliance in the Great Lakes region for many, many mm -hmm. millennia, actually. And I think when colonization happened, that got broken up and people were moved into spaces where eventually, um, although much of the land was allotted or given to other people, there were small spaces where they could continue to govern and have moved forward in that way, the sovereign nations that exist now. It's not a group of nations that had to experience relocation, and it's not a nation that was discovered, you know, by Columbus. I mean, Nicolette showed up at one point, and there were influences but it's a space that was really in the heart of North America and was until the early 1800s for the Western edge, really the mid 1800s, able to retain the language and culture right up until that point. And so it was a very sudden experience to have that sort of linguistic genocide. And in many cases, there were also battles and there were, you know, some removals of individual people as well. Because there are different, you said, communities, right, that yeah. speak the language. Are there any cases where there could be one person speaking maybe a particular dialect? I don't know if we can talk about dialect here, but that maybe there's only one person. And what I'm, I wanted to share something with you before our conversation. I found I don't really collect newspapers, but you wouldn't believe that I have one. I have one newspaper that I kept, only one in my life. It's dated as it's Sunday, San Jose Mercury News, August 26, 2001. I've had this newspaper for 20 years, that section, oh. on the world. It's very unusual because I have no newspapers. <laughs> I don't keep anything. This part, the world part from that newspaper, has traveled with me through Poland, U.S., and France. And finally, it made it to Savannah, Georgia, where I'm now. Why am I keeping it? I have to tell you because it has to do with what you just said. To some extent, I was getting my master's in applied linguistics 20 years ago. 
And I was at that time, I was, I didn't live in California yet, but I was visiting California and I was in Santa Cruz and I was on my way to UCSC to a library. I wanted to look for some books and materials for my thesis I was working on. Um, I was getting my applied linguistics at Warsaw University in Poland that time. So it was summer. And I remember I stopped at the Santa Cruz bookstore on my way to UCSC library. I looked at the newsstand by the bookstore. I saw the San Jose Mercury News, that Sunday edition. First page said lost languages. And I thought, oh, I need to have it. Half to 90% of languages could be extinct by 2100, linguists predict. And the main title here says, Lost Languages. There are 6,800 languages spoken in the world. More than half of them could disappear this century. Sometimes there is one or two speakers left. And the language is pretty much about to extinct. I think that was the time when I really became interested and concerned about language extinction. Yes, absolutely. And the things that I would say for people interested in this my friend, Bernie Purley. So he is currently a professor at British Columbia, the University of British Columbia. And he writes often about what he terms zombie linguistics, because if we think of these languages dying or being lost, it's a dangerous metaphor because then how can children ever imagine that they would bring them back? You know, what does it mean to consider something actually dead and then try to bring it back, right? So he often will try and push people to think hard about metaphors that are languages maybe sleeping or languages that are in the process of being remembered. Daryl Baldwin is another person that people interested in this might want to look up. He had that situation with the Mayama language where no one in his family spoke it. It had not been spoken for many, many years in his community, and yet he wanted his children to be able to learn it. And so using all of the tools available and working with a linguist named David Costa, they did start using Mayama. And so what do you call that, really? You know, it was asleep and it, and it is reawakened. Um, there's lots of ways to look at it, but you're absolutely right. I think that even those counts, when I read those and it says there's seven speakers left, those speakers may or may not have the ability to speak to each other. They may or not may not want to use the language anymore. Sometimes there are communities where you might say there are five speakers left, but they are survivors of residential schools and they just won't use it anymore because mm -hmm. it's too painful. So yeah, I think even when I say there are 142 Anishinaabe nations, in many of those communities, there aren't many people using the language. And there are very few homes in which people of multiple generations use the language, which is one of the real signs that a language is alive and well, when you have people using it across generations. Even now, I know when I have students, if they're the only one learning the language in their family, that's partly why we created the website that we did, because if they're the only one speaking it, it really doesn't bring it back in a full way. So anytime you're working with a language, you want to get people to create conversation and be creative because otherwise you're really just reading archival texts. What's interesting, we have environmental issues. We have lots of issues in mm -hmm. our society and the world in general. But even if we don't talk too much about the environment, it still is a broader conversation than languages. It doesn't seem very surprising when we hear conversations, some people talking about environmental issues or animals, some species 
becoming extinct and we are concerned about that. But there's nothing unusual about those conversations. It can be hurtful, it can be painful to hear. But in our society, we don't think of language as a living form, which it is. So we don't think of it, it has a heart that beats, so it cannot die. So there's not so much concern, especially English being one of the main languages in the world that we use to communicate. Yeah, I agree. I agree that we have underestimated both the ability for language to contain important information about places and ways of being in the world and the ability of children to use multiple languages. So the thing that has caused many languages to disappear recently is there are nations or political goals where people think that in order to have a nation, everyone must use the same language when Mm -hmm. in fact it's been proven over and over that some of the strongest communities on many continents they would have multiple languages and people would clearly be speaking multiple languages. If I think of the place where I live now in Milwaukee, right up until the 1820s, we would have had people speaking Menominee, Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, Sac, Fox, a number of languages easily and mixing in that city and space. And so when these spaces became states, they started to try and use just one language. And and I think many of the immigrants that came to America felt Mm -hmm. we must use English. It is the one language, the way to prove I am American. We haven't done well in this nation to encourage people who bring other languages and other ways of seeing the world. Although in America, people will often admit, well, we're strong because of our diversity and our history of immigration. But you would think they would realize part of that is in the language too. Especially, I think language has all those beautiful forms. It's not just a form of communicating and explaining what we are trying to explain, but it's conveying emotions. I speak a few languages, so I find it so interesting how one word or I'm trying to express something in a sentence or two in one language will sound completely obviously different because it's a different language, but also might sound so much more appealing and almost like singing. Well, I could have this conversation about languages for a long time, but maybe I'll move on to so many other fascinating things that I you would like to share with us. You're a professor of English and American Indian Studies, and also there is writing. Is it focused on one particular language? Well, it's interesting you ask that, and I know you will edit things in whatever way you wish, <laughs> but I have frequently been on record saying, I believe that in our field, which we many of us consider to be literature and language and writing, that has been called English. So in many universities, there are English departments. And most people know that in those departments, people study literature from across the world. They study writing broadly. And anyone who speaks any language is welcome to learn how to express themselves in in writing. So I think that our habit of considering English departments to be places that only use English is just not always the best and most accurate way. So yes, I'm a professor of English, but that's because that we have had that habit in higher education. When we say English, we mean literature, writing, composition, rhetoric, all of this together, literary theory. So my focus has always been linguistics and creative writing and the space in between where You're teaching language, you're teaching expression of language, and I've worked a lot with translation and theories of culture within literature. I have taught Chaucer, and that's very English, (laughs) but I've also taught the Irish literature classes and the American Indian literature classes, right? So I think it's interesting that we have to wait to see when 
our education systems begin reflecting what we know is important, which is world languages and mm-hmm. world literatures and theories that encompass and include a broader range of understanding. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about the book you wrote. I will try to pronounce the name as accurately as possible. Bawajamo. Was it Bawajamo? Mm-hmm. Am I close? Right. A dialect of dreams in Anishinaabe language and literature. What is a dialect of dreams? I'm curious about that. So we have in Anishinaabe one ways to talk about dreaming, which is basically a way of seeing a different space or seeing a different time or an alternate way of being in the world. I think many, many cultures would say that when we stop living in the world actively and we go to sleep, what our brains do is unpack all of what is around us and combine memories and stories in our own head in a way that can sometimes be useful for people if they're trying to work through something or remember something or maybe forget something. Um, and so for us, bawajagay is the verb to dream in that way, that sort of having visions in this other space while you're not consciously living in the, the present day. And then that ending, the imo, is what we say when there's a language. So if I say Ojibwe and I want to say then I speak Ojibwe, it's Ojibwemo. If I were to say I'm dreaming, Bwajigay, but I wanted to say Bwajimo, it might be a way of speaking in that state. So it's really a combining. So uh, the best English translation I could come up with was a dialect or a language one might use when you're dreaming or trying to be in a different space. And the book itself is about a series of Anishinaabe authors who throughout the years that they were writing, some of them have passed away now, two of them, Basil Johnston bah, and Jim Northrup, bah, and then Louise Erdrich and Jerry Visner, all of them are Anishinaabe authors, two of them still living. They've used the language in their work. And I've, in that book, explore the idea of whether they are pulling forward things that are hard to know or hard to name and deal with in the present by pulling that old language into the language that's around us all the time now. And for all of them, it is true that you can see across the arc of their careers an increased use of the language. Only one of them uh, was able to retain fluency throughout his life, Basil Johnston. The rest of them each had disruption in the family at some point where they did not get to learn the language as kids. And some of them, like Jim Northrup and Louise Erdrich, spent considerable time as adults working to learn the language. And even Jerry Bisner spent time supporting others learning the language and, and works with it a bit himself. Thank you. So writing, singing, the languages, and also you collaborate a lot with visual artists too and sound mm-hmm. artists. Can you please talk a little bit about that? What's the title in English? There was, I have it open somewhere here, To Exchange Gift. There was the song. There's a song, yes. Yuenamo. Yes, that's a that was a fun little thing. So that comes from two things. One is this friend of mine, Finn Ryan, who's a wonderful 
wonderful filmmaker, really able to capture the essence of a person or a place. And he's made a number of films that focus specifically on the indigenous people of the area where I am now. So there is a website called The Ways where he's posted a number of beautiful, more than interviews, going out into a space with people and sharing the land as they know it or the place that reflects who they are. And he was asked to help a large group that was holding a conference do a land acknowledgement, which is a thing now. People do land acknowledgements. They didn't used to do those maybe 10 years ago. It's certainly not when I was growing up. And so many of us in the indigenous community will get asked to help with a land acknowledgement. And usually people mean, how do we talk about who was here? And that's not a bad instinct to have, to recognize if you're at a university that before this university, there were other people who were perpetuating knowledge and doing learning. And so there was a layer before. And so that's a good place to start. But I always try to push people and challenge them to say, well, there are people now, you know, there are people all over. So he helped make an interesting little video where it shows the very urban city of Milwaukee, but we chose to do the film along the Kinnikinnick River and the shores of Lake Michigan. And I wrote a little song that combines the notion of what the people who are still in that space as indigenous voices and indigenous cultural practitioners, what they bring to Milwaukee. So those people on like Kinnikinnick means to mix things up and Michigaming is this vast space. And so if you spend time with indigenous people in the city of Milwaukee now, and you ask, how do I know this space? They'll very quickly say, there are all these things to appreciate. There are ways for us to exchange gifts and knowledge. And so that's what that song was about. So that it's more than just saying here in the city of Milwaukee, there were Ho-Chunk and Menominee and Potawatomi people. It's much more here in our languages that are alive and thriving is a song about who we are in this space. That's a very beautiful meditative song. Like I said, that's my morning meditation when I walk in the morning to work. I really enjoy listening to it. So Right. So there is a video artist, filmmaker that you work with. There's, it seems like even the book covers, your book covers are beautiful. Well, the book cover, I think, did I mention to you? I don't know. So the book cover for Gijigijiganeshi Gekendan, the publisher felt it would be more marketable to have it mostly known by its English name, what the chickadee knows. (laughs) But our word for chickadee is Gijigijiganeshi. And I asked my oldest daughter, could you draw a chickadee for me for this cover? And she said, all right. And then she sent me this. And if you look on the inside of the book or on the back, I guess on the back of the book, it says on the cover, the title is Gizaga Inn by Shannon Nuri. She has Afghan background and Anishinaabe background and many backgrounds as many American kids do today. And she did the cover. And so she said, mom, It's a mother chickadee and two baby chickadees because I have two daughters, Shannon and Fiona. (laughs) So the title of it, Gizaga Inn, means I love you. Oh, that's even more special. Thank you for explaining that. I just enjoy looking at the cover. So please tell your daughter. I will tell her. It's beautiful. Oh, so you have an artist in the family. Yes. Well, they've both done a lot with me over the years Um, on Ojibwe.net. A number of the songs, the other voices 
that we list when we say who's singing the song, you'll see that it's Shannon and Fionan. They both were given Ojibwe names. Shannon is Nita Mazinbige Kwe, which is one who makes beautiful images. And Fionan is Nita Namikwe's aunt, which is one who is a good dancer. And they've both lived up to those names, absolutely, even though they were given them the names when they were much younger. I think they're amazing sisters who've grown up around the language. And they also are proof that now it just takes only one generation and just a few years for a language to flourish again. When you have young people who grow up being proud of learning the languages that their ancestors spoke, it can make such a difference in how people feel about their own heritage and culture. And I wish in the United States that all kids, almost every child has, if they really look into their long and extended background, a number of languages that they could connect to. I wish that we did more of that. This is really interesting because I often hear being from Poland and speaking a few languages, I often hear from people I meet here saying, oh, you speak all those languages. I wish I could speak other languages. And then you hear, oh, yes, my ancestor come from Ireland. So I always ask, I'm just curious, have you visited? Sometimes they say yes, sometimes no. I say, do you speak the language? No, I wish my grandmother taught me. So you, I often hear that. Right. Yeah, it's a stopping of identity. I've been doing a lot of work lately with a number of collaborators in Ireland, because for me, that's another part of my background. I grew up with O'Donnell as my last name. And we have part of the family that are a long time ago would have come from Donegal. And the same thing, I had no access to learning that language as a child at all because it had not been spoken in our family for a generation or two. And now it's been just fascinating to work with people. There's one um, poem that we have on Ojibwe.net where there's actually a picture of Fiona standing out looking at the Westerns shores in Ireland when she visited Ireland. And what I did was take a poem by Martin O'Daren that he wrote in Irish during the Irish language revitalization. And I put it into Ojibwe so that, you know, just we could move between languages without the English. We could echo those sounds. And the end of that is Herak Valia, thinking about where we are home in the West and what the West means to us. For us, it means looking toward the end or the next cycle of life. So yeah, I like to try and work with translation when I can. Thank you so much. I could listen to you, Margaret, for another few few hours, but I know you are busy. At the end of this episode, I'm going to share the song that we just talked about. But before we finish, I wanted to ask you, Is there a new project you're working on? Yeah, the project I should finish is a series of translations, really thinking about what would it mean if I really took to heart centering the literature and language of the Great Lakes and how would we view world literature from that space? So because I speak and teach in Anishinaabemwin, how would I think of Chaucer and uh, Sappho and Hafez and... You know, so I have a number of translations that I've done. So I translated some of Chaucer, Shakespeare, some poetry from Hafez. And then I realized, wait, all of those are Indo-European, right? So then I worked on doing a little bit as well in Oneida and Dakota, because those, if we were here in the Great Lakes, those would be our sort of sister nations or the large diasporas on either side of us. For the Anishinaabek, the, to the east, we had the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And those are Iroquoian languages, very different, amazing, complex languages in completely different ways. And the same to the west of us is the Ochetishakawan. 
those seven groups in that area that kind of the expanse of the prairie was where, you know, that diaspora was. So I would like to finish that project up and, and really think about how we move across language and what we consider to be classics, mm-hmm. how we translate each other's classics and what we can learn from doing that. So, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, I think there's always something to do, isn't there? <laughs> there's always a side project that's that you right. could probably excited in the oh. It's only a small project, but then it takes a lot of time. And then yeah, energy. well, and I should say the other really amazing things that I finished recently, I did a really fun translation from looking at the story in Old Irish of Cúchulainn, the kind of cultural hero in Ireland, and our cultural hero, Wenobuju, and how there were some things similar in their lives, but some things very different. And I finished a little bilingual children's book with my two daughters. So Fiona wrote the story and it has a little song in it. And then Shannon did the design and layout. And the title of that is To Fall Asleep Holding Hands. (laughs) So that's another little project that we hope that book will be printed and available soon as well. So it's always little things, you're right. (laughs) I'm very much looking forward to reading that book. I will have to remember to send you a copy, yes. (laughs) You know, I'm going to say I don't want to talk too much about Chaucer because I mentioned that in one of my previous episodes. But because you have mentioned him and his writing a few times, Chaucer was my favorite writer in college. Canterbury Tales. I remember laughing constantly reading. My friends thought that was a little bit insane. How can you even laugh? How can you understand this sense of humor? Because of Chaucer, I had to go and visit Canterbury to visit the place and the cathedral. Yes, I have been to Canterbury as well. And that's very near where my friend David Stirrup teaches. And I would completely agree. I think that language needs to move across time. And when I was translating some of the Chaucer, the jokes and the ways that he played with language and captured sometimes a little piece of song or within his own language, what I looked at in the piece that I did when I translated some Chaucer was all the ways he said the word dream, you know, there were just so many ways that he was connecting across cultures in, in his day, in his time. So yeah, I think there are things that in some ways we, you know, we have to look backward in time and in some ways we do things that move forward in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, when I was in Canterbury, I also discovered that Joseph Conrad, Joseph yes. Kanyowski, was buried there. I didn't know that yeah. before I went. So yeah. that was my I, other discovery. I thought Canterbury was amazing. Just a, a little crazy town with all these layers, right? You know, right. just yeah. all of these layers. And in some cases, it looked like just so much capitalism and exchange. And then I thought, mm-hmm. well, I guess that's what it would have looked like even back in the day, right? Someone who lived... Right quietly out in the country would come to Canterbury and they probably thought, oh, this is a busy city with all this selling and coming and going. And so there's always been spaces like that in the world, I think, where there's just so much exchange of people, you know, that chaos of language and and all of that, where there's people coming together. Can you please tell us where our listeners can find your work and projects? I will share that information also on our website. Also, I know you are on Instagram too. It's yeah. a very popular application in today's world. Those so. are probably the two places that we keep most things. So on Ojibwe.net, and there's many ways to spell Ojibwe. We've spelled it O-J-I-B-W-E. There's lots of historic variations, but Ojibwe.net is where we've housed 
actually all of our lessons so people can learn the language there. We encountered many people who said, how do I learn this? How do I begin to understand some of the grammar and practice with the language? So lessons are there, but also a lot of songs and many of my own poems, stories we've recorded from other people. So it's just a site for people who might not have access to a community of multiple speakers where where you can go and learn more about the language and culture. And then, of course, my daughters being younger than me by, you know, many years, they said, well, what we need to do now is share some words and images. So our Instagram account, they will usually update with interesting ways to look at what's going on in the world today. Um, For them, the Black Lives Matter movement has been extremely important. Indigenous Peoples Day. There are often ways that they want to connect their language to the concerns in the world now. So they will often post a sentence that comments either on Mm -hmm. just the season or the time or things that are important to people in their 20s. So I've always enjoyed that as well. That's, I think, Ojibwe underscore net. (laughs) So... Yeah. I will share all that information on the yeah. website. Once again, Margaret, thank you so much. It's been a treat to have you here. Thank you for accepting our invitation. And thank you for sharing your work with us. I'm very much looking forward to your book coming out. Please tell your daughters I'm looking forward to their work too. Yes. And I'll be following your work and listening to you reading and singing. And I'll be reading too. <laughs> it's very nice to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you for making it possible. Thank you so much. We would say, the crazy bird. <laughs> oh, okay. Can you please repeat it? <laughs> yeah. Crazy bird would be Gnadze Beneshi. Mano mini quinabigu, photo e watami, way a heoa heoway. Giwen a mal, mino ake mino nebi, get a bajam o young deb wet a mock, as a barbam end a mong wabashkak. Mama no nenemi yangedwa wa watesek misquabi mejik. Way a heoa heoway. Giwen a mal. Dibishku o komesiban. Adezoka nak dagik namaguyek. Jim Arona Dieg, Gaye Mamaka Dendamek, Mikone Gwa, Mikwana Gong, Mashkiga King, Minoa King, Weyaheyoa Heyway. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Bird Podcast. The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violeta Kaminska. Our guest for this episode was Margaret Nudin. You can learn more about Professor Nudin's work on ojibwe.net and on Instagram, ojibwe underscore net. Giwenema, the song played at the end of this episode, was written and sung by Margaret Nudin. It was composed in 2021 as a land and water acknowledgement for the city of Milwaukee. 
Our theme music is inspired by Tambourine, by French composer François-Joseph Gossec. The improvisation is performed by Agnieszka Kowalik. Nature sounds are recorded by Violeta Kaminska. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Violeta Kaminska.